0: This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello and welcome to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Today, I'm extremely delighted to have one of my good friends, Brian O'Day, who's joining us from his home in Cali. Uh, Brian spends the good months, (laughs) I say winter, in the South in the States and comes home to Canada to see his friends and family. So we're delighted to have him. Uh, Brian, how are you?
1: I'm good, Stephen. How about you?
0: Good. Awesome. Great to see you. Thank you. I'm going to start out by just touching on some of the The little highlights of your life, which really we can't really fit into a quick summary, but I'm going to try. Brian's from Newfoundland, grew up there uh, from quite a prominent political family and entrepreneurial family. And uh, went to school there and then had quite a colorful uh, life as a drug smuggler, which he'll tell us a little bit about some incredible stories that are going to be relevant to our conversation today. Uh, Brian's also an author. He has a best-selling book, uh, High Confessions of a Pot Smuggler. He reinvented his life working in uh, money investments. Uh, And I met Brian, God, Brian, I think it's about, it's almost 10 years ago now, We met in Toronto, and uh, at that time, through many conversations, and we realized that we we saw a lot of things the same way, especially about politics and, and drugs and the legalization of drugs and the decriminalization of drugs. Anyways, Brian, welcome. Maybe you can kind of fill in some of the blanks of your journey from Newfoundland to being this global uh, drug smuggler. And, uh, so tell our our audience a little bit more about that journey for us.
1: I left Newfoundland to go to university in Nova Scotia, uh, in 1965, I guess it was. And it was just when the flower children movement was underway. Um, it was all of that though, at that moment was foreign to me, but I did drink considerably. And so I left Newfoundland, went to Nova Scotia and in Nova Scotia, Uh, In Newfoundland, drugs weren't around, at at least as far as any of us knew. Uh, I mean, there were prescription drugs, and I'm sure there were lots of people doing those and uh, abusing them, but pot and LSD and all of those things didn't exist in Newfoundland at that time. Nova Scotia was a completely different story it had hippies it had kids with long hair and playing guitar on the street and it was a different story um for a year i just observed it when i got back for the next year the beginning of the next year i met these hippies Uh, we all used to go to the same kind of restaurant under the uh, lord nelson hotel in halifax Uh, a restaurant at that time it was called Murray's and the hippies would sit in the back and everybody else would sit everywhere else but the hippies had this kind of back (laughs) corner anyway at some at one point uh, early in the second year at St. Mary's I met a couple of these guys and they said hey you want to smoke some pot and I said uh, as much as I thought I never would I said well yeah I think I'd like to try that So I lived in an apartment uh, in the Park Victoria um, with uh, uh, three other guys. And uh, so I said, come on, let's go back to the apartment. And we went back there and the boys were there and we all sat on the kitchen floor for whatever reason. And these guys rolled joints and lit them and started passing them around. Everybody got messed up. But I didn't. And nothing happened and I was a little bit disappointed and I stood up to walk out of the room and it struck me like a ton of bricks. And the next thing you know, I'm in front of the refrigerator eating everything that I could find, uh, laughing at every single thing. Uh, and that was the day that my life truly changed. You know, it, uh, I discovered something that was nothing but fun. And I couldn't for the life of me understand why this was illegal, because I figured if everybody felt like I felt right now, it'd be a much better world. Exactly. So I brought some back to Newfoundland. Well, it took about five minutes for the RCMP to find out that <laughs> Brian O'Day had come back from the mainland, as they called Nova Scotia and their parks beyond, and brought back drugs. And we were smoking this stuff that I brought back and everybody was having fun. I was driving into the university in St. John's and someone stopped me on the way in and said, the cops are looking for you. They're in here and they're trying to find you. So I immediately went back to my place, buried my pot and everything out in the yard and then left and came back into the university. And sure enough, you know, they were there and they came out to my house and they're looking in the garage and they're out poking sticks down in the yard. I couldn't believe it. And, but they never found it. And so from that point on, I was a target basically. Uh, I, and friends of mine became targets.
0: Well, you're at the time, obviously marijuana is illegal. So you're, oh, you, you, what you're doing absolutely. is illegal, right?
1: Absolutely. Right. Uh, but we didn't care. And we just, you know, we're looking for ways not to get caught. Uh, we smoke in the street. We didn't care about that, but we, we didn't want to get caught selling this stuff. Right. So we used to fly to the mainland to get this stuff because we had to go somewhere. And we'd show up, say, in Toronto and go to Rochdale. Um, Probably most of the people listening to this podcast don't know what Rochdale is. Uh, It's now an old age home, interestingly (laughs) enough. But in my day, it was a preschool university level uh, run by the University of Toronto. And every floor was filled with drug dealers. And there were hell's angels in one part, and, and it was the oddest thing. But we would go there to buy dope to take back to Newfoundland. And they say, "Here come the Newfies!" And boom, the prices would go up, and we'd pay more, and we'd get abused, and it was rude. Back in Newfoundland, meanwhile, a bunch of guys showed up from England, musicians, and you know they come out of the Beatles and that era. Right. These are young British musicians who had some measure of success in their own rights in Europe, but they wanted to get over to North America where they they felt the market was. And so they started in Newfoundland and we had this band. Uh, It was an amazing, great band, amazing musicians from Newfoundland and a couple of guys from England. I managed these guys. I, you know, I played that my instrument was the telephone. (laughs) (laughs) they played, they sang, I played the phone. And we got booked everywhere. We did really well. And one day, and they liked hash. These guys smoked a lot of hash, a lot of spliffs, hash and tobacco. And and we all smoked tobacco in those days as well. So, you know, spliffs were what we smoked, lots of them. Um, One day, one of the guys in the band says to me, man, sure it'll cost a lot of money to get this stuff in Toronto. I got some mates in England who you could go see and wow, the price would be like, instead of a thousand a pound, it'd be 300 a kilo. Mm -hmm.
0: So now you're expanding internationally.
1: I got on a plane the next day and flew over there and got 10 kilos from these guys and taped it to my body. The hash that I had on my body stunk like cow shit. Okay, really bad. And so I got to the airport. I just can't imagine what it must have been like sitting next to me on the plane. Okay, it must have smelled like I just came off the farm. But I'm coming back into Gander, Newfoundland, through customs, and I get to customs, and the customs guy looks at my passport and he says, "Brian there you Johnson?" And I said, "I am." Oh, John's a wonderful man, and you know, Dad owned a brewery, and everybody knew Dad. And so just being John's son got me a walkthrough, and that was the transition point from consumer getting small amounts of product in his own country to crossing international borders, buying the same product for a tenth of the price and bringing it back across the border himself. So I I did it myself for quite a while until it got to where I needed help.
0: So essentially, you, you know, you got your start in your your, your home province uh, in Canada, you started, then you decided you started international importation, then this took you to the Caribbean, it took you to Colombia, it took you to Florida, you're into cocaine, you become addicted to cocaine. Right. So the story goes, you know, you smuggled drugs in planes, you crash planes into the ocean. But really, where we get to after all these years of ups and downs and getting caught, not getting caught. But now we're we're into the 80s. Uh, Everyone knows, you know, the the cocaine, drug trafficking, marijuana. You land in this operation on uh, in the west side in Washington, Alaska, importing marijuana uh, from Southeast Asia. And through that, at the same time, you're trying to get off drugs. And essentially, you you kind of decide to quit, right? After you do this big, huge smuggling of hundreds of millions of marijuana into Washington state, and you kind of go, maybe I should do be doing something different.
1: I had a heart attack from a coke
0: overdose. That got my attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly, a former associate Uh, who, you know, had a big mouth and maybe spent uh, too much money publicly, turns because he's caught. And through the investigation, your name comes up and you're arrested and you actually plead guilty. You don't give names and you're sentenced to 10 years in prison in California. That's correct. This is what, today, we're going to talk about the discrimination in the judicial system. We're going to talk about the war on drugs. We're going to talk about the disadvantage in terms of parole and things like that.
1: Let me just offer for one
0: second, Stephen. Excuse me for a second. Let me just, because I can't fucking
1: help myself. Excuse me. Because yesterday, I listened to a news story about the fucking Sackler's going to increase the money now that they had they had offered up 4 billion dollars okay there are tens of thousands of dead people because of these people okay the sacklers are the people who owned oxycodone the people who trafficked oxycodone in north america worse than any heroin trafficker that ever existed and they bought their way out of any repercussions other than giving up lucre money of which they have many more billions than what they're offering to give up. And yet I was in prison with a young man who sold a gram of crack in Long Beach and was doing 20 years. It's ridiculous. I just can't tell you how angry that makes me and how fucked up this system is. And it is not changing, and it is never changing. Period. So this is what we're confronted with today, yesterday, the day before, and we will be confronted with forever. Because, you see, from politicians to these oligarchs, we give them passes on prison. We dig into their pockets and take a few of their shekels. And, you know, whatever hat we're going to put that into rehabilitation of drug
0: addicts. Bumbleclot. No. You know what? This is exactly why I wanted to talk to you. So just to orient the audience, since the, the war on drugs, or as you and I called it, the war on black people, uh, started 1970, The United States has spent more than a trillion dollars on the war on drugs, which is about 3.3 billion annually, and put basically millions of people into the industrial prison complex, right? But even today, speaking to what you just said about things are still have not changed. For a black boy today, one in three black boys should expect to be in prison, this is, I'm talking for nonviolent crimes, for drug crimes in America versus white kids, one in 17. So we see the disparity. And the other stat that I had here was that in America, this is from stats between 1979 and 1990, 75% of drug users in America were white people, right? 15% were black, but yet there was double the amount of arrest of black people versus white people so i the point i want to make and and i think is important as we're talking about systemic racism and what's cooked and baked into the system is that this is what we're talking about right there's the bias and prejudice and disadvantage that are built into systems and that's what many people uh, are trying to reform and change i see a little bit of progress but there's a long 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 journey and also to your point you know what's the difference between going to jail for crack cocaine or selling OxyContin to teenagers in Ohio, getting them hooked and having die. I've met those people. I've seen that. It's terrible. It It wasn't legal. What they were doing was not legal.
1: The inner substance was legal under certain circumstances. Every circumstance, from the manufacturing of it to the Injection of it by a drug addict. Every single part of that transaction was illegal, right from the manufacturing to the person dying of it. Because they knew where it was going. They designed where it went.
0: They constructed and fabricated a market where there was none. With many doctors uh, complicit. Complicit. uh, absolutely 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 and one or two doctors go to jail but none of the people of
1: the origin of this whole thing nothing's going to happen to them nothing ever and they don't even know they don't even care about the little black kid from long
0: beach who sold a
1: gram of crack
0: who's doing 20 years well, yeah, the, the, all the sentencing, which is another thing, uh, not just in the United States, here in Canada, we've had issues with, in the U.S., obviously, the famous three strikes, you're out, which even petty drug possession charges, which uh, created minimum sentences for, as you described, kids like that being in jail for 20 years for a small amount of crack cocaine. It makes no sense. So it, it's predatory, really. You were talking about that uh, the Canada and U.S. should decriminalize drugs like they've done, for example, in Portugal. So Portugal decriminalized their drugs. And if you look at all the stats, it's been a great success in terms of addiction, about health care, about crime. So, you know, I kind of know the answer to this, but I'd like to hear from you. Why do you think that's a good policy? Uh, What do you think the impact would be? And and why do you think that's never going to happen?
1: Our society is like a cult of punishment. Vengeful bastards
0: run the society
1: and they have to have scapegoats. And so they picked the most vulnerable among us to carry all of our sins and whip them on out of town. You know what I mean? So they foist all of the wrongs that were confronted with onto a very small group of people that it's easy to push it off onto. And then they blame them for the issues. You know, they blame poor people for their poverty.
0: Rich people do that. Uh, as we see in our prison Indigenous. system, black people are overrepresented here in Canada. I don't know if you know this number, Brian, but it's shocking, right? Indigenous people in Canada make make up four point five percent of the population, but represent thirty percent of inmates in our prison system, right? Yeah. So
1: and more, even more in in Saskatchewan and Alberta. You know, they make up very little of the population in Newfoundland, not a lot in Nova Scotia, but on the West Coast. So why do people do drugs? Because their lives are fucking miserable for the most part. They're in poverty. They can't even afford anything or anywhere to live. So anything to get out of your mind is helpful. You know what I mean? I My mind was a terrible place to be. So, I had to put things in there to change it. And until I learned to deal with the understanding that my problems are nothing that I don't think they are, until I came to grips with that, I had to continually change my mind with substances. And I could never accept the moment as it was given. Now, was I mentally ill? Yeah, I guess I had PTSD from being sexually abused as a kid that never got dealt with. And that got compounded by being thrown in jail as a young person when I was 20-whatever-two uh, uh, into a prison for 19 months for smoking a few joints, you know? And it, and it just it, I, it continually exposed to that kind of trauma that never got dealt with. Um My greatest trauma, I figured, that that set me on a trajectory uh, to do the things that I did was getting sexually abused by a Christian brother. And what I learned at the age where I was being abused was that any thought of sex beyond its coming or going was punishable by eternity in hell if you didn't confess it to a priest. So from the time that that guy started abusing me until it was over and long beyond that, I knew I was going to hell. There was no way, there was no way I was telling it in confession, so I was convinced that at any moment, God was going to fucking strike me down and send me to hell. So from 11 years old until I kind of grew out of that around 15 or 16, I guess I stopped worrying about God killing me. So I got to think that that type of thought pattern in a young growing mind uh, screws a person up. And so it makes that person whose mind is the enemy. Everything that, you know, I, I was just crazy. So when I discovered that I could put things in my body that changed my mind, then I was putting a lot of them in there. If one worked, fucking 20 worked better.
0: First of all, Brian, you've told me the story before, it's still shocking, and I'm sorry, and I know you, and I know what a a great warm person you are, and and, uh, as you know, in Canada, the whole issue of residential schools here in Canada with Indigenous people has been, uh, uh, for some, a revelation that this even happened, but we know that, you know hundreds of thousands of young children were taken from their indigenous families and put in these residential schools, many who experience what you've just described in your experience, and these schools were traditionally ran by uh, religious orders. When I think of that, I, I can only imagine the trauma of those children. Of course, then you combine that with drugs, as you've just mentioned, and it just compounds the issue. And then, of course, you add the targeting by the police; it's a super vicious cycle and uh, terrible. So I think it's important to talk about it, and I, I appreciate that you shared your personal experience. and And the one thing I also, because we're we're doing a podcast, like you're white, uh, but you know, you you shared with me stories of your time, your short time entry in the uh, penitentiary, in in the United States, because you had the privilege of being actually uh, transferred to Canada. But while you were in the U S you, you know, I think obviously you were kind of trying to deal with surviving there and, and you, you told me the story about movie night, you know, which was a one luxury of standing in line and tell us that story. Cause I think, I think it's, it's really cool. Yeah.
1: All right. So I'm, I'm new in prison. I, I'm, you know, I'm a fish. I'm, I'm in here probably, I don't know, less than a week. And I've been taken under the wing of this Canadian who's the longest term prisoner in Terminal Island, who was in there for drugs. And he was like a charismatic, beautiful guy. And there was a whole crew of pot smuggling guys in there that he brought me to. And I knew some of them. And, and so he really took care of me. And it was, we had, you know, I felt good and free. Anyway, Friday night, movie over in the gym. So we go get in line. I think the movie starts at 7.30, so we get in line around 6. You know, they're only letting so many people in. If you're not far enough up in line, you're not going to make the movie. So we got there around 6 o'clock for a 7.30 movie. And I'm standing in line with the boys, and most of the guards in here are black guys, and there's a shit ton of young black men in here. They represent the biggest portion of the population in the joint, I would say, in this particular one anyway. We're right in Long Beach, the Terminal Islands on an island in, in LA Harbor, right in Long Beach. So, um, as we're standing there waiting to go in the movie, and I believe the movie was Shawshank Redemption. No, That's interesting. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, these black guys walk across the yard and they. And they just walk right in through the door. And the cop standing on the door of the guard, he's a black guy, he doesn't do anything. He just lets him go. And I, after three or four of these groups of black guys walking across the yard doing this, I, I turned to my friend Mark. I said, what the fuck? Well, well, we've been in this line for an hour and a half. What the fuck's going on? And he said, hey, is this as bad as it gets for you? And I said, What? He said, right now, right here, is this about as bad as you think it could get for you? And I said, well, pretty close. He said, well, you see those guys? They're walking in through that door. This is as good as it gets for them and as good as it's gonna get for fucking 20 years. So do you want that? Do you want that? And all of a sudden I fucking grokked. I got it in a really visceral way. What was happening with these young men that wasn't happening to me. That's super powerful. And, right. oh, it was just, oh, it was
0: an awakening moment, I can tell you. Well, I think that's the perfect place to take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy, to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services. Positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Welcome back to Black and White. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. I'm having an amazing conversation with my good friend, Brian O'Day. Uh, Brian, we've been, uh, I alluded at the top of the, the show uh, in regards to uh, decriminalization. And uh, I remember when you spoke at uh, an event on my behalf and standing up for me at a, a keynote. So I, I wanted to, to revisit that and talk about decriminalization. And I know you've been an advocate. Uh, for that for many years in regards to obviously not just um, marijuana but really all drugs and uh, so maybe tell me a little bit more about your thoughts around that and uh, and then we can kind of talk about where we are today.
1: Decriminalization is a half measure and I am not for decriminalization unless it's the first step in the process of legalization. Legalization, it's my responsibility as a family person, as a father of children, to display the greatest examples I can give my children. And part of that display is empathy. You see people who are not as fortunate as me or my children may be suffering and relieving themselves by abuse of drugs. You see for all of those people drugs are not a problem. Their use of drugs and what happens is a problem for me but it's not for them. It's a solution for them and we punish them for that solution we put them in danger of their lives for that solution you see once again I go back to children being broken as children and then punished for their brokenness forever that's who is an alcoholic that's who is a drug addict that's who is abusive that's who's being abused you see its
0: origins are in how they were raised so of course as we know Over the years, you know, at one time... Cocaine was legal, then it wasn't. We know that LSD was legal, then it wasn't. So alcohol was legal, then not legal, then legal again. So society, through their government, have made decisions over time, what's right or wrong. But many people would say that's because we have to control substances and how people are going to consume them and protect our children, as you're talking about children, protect the vulnerable, uh, uh, eliminate uh, illegal activities, etc., So how does that all play into your position?
1: My position is all drugs should be legalized. And if you want to do drugs, and that is the only thing that you're doing, you're not being invasive of my person or property. You see, that's a crime. And if you invade my person or property, then I got a problem with that. But other than that... What you do with your life is your business. I'm here to help you should you want to stop doing what you're doing. But if you choose to do what you do, you should be allowed to go get whatever substance you need to get from a source where you know it's not going to kill you. Like, just let me step a little bit back from that. In New York, they just opened these injection sites, in Vancouver, they've had them for a long time. Same in Toronto. As a matter of fact, where of I course, lived in yeah, Toronto, yeah. I watched every morning go by my house a parade of people who would be empty-handed going one way, and then coming back the other way, they had a brown paper bag in their hand. That brown paper <laughs> bag was a government-issue brown paper bag. A charitable issue. It was funded by government of clean syringes, clean crack pipes, clean meth pipes, whatever, to try and help mitigate the problems that come with sharing accoutrement in the drug world. Now there are even places where you can go before you take your drugs. Like in New York, I think what they're doing in New York is they're testing the drug before you take it, or they are immediately responsive should you overdose. Um, We need to have a place for these broken people to not kill themselves. Look, I've known heroin addicts who are totally functional people because they're given their issue. What do you think methadone is? Methadone is doctor prescribed way worse than heroin. I worked in a recovery hospital and I saw people come in and climb the walls for two or three days because they were kicking heroin. Two weeks People with methadone would be still climbing the walls. Their bones would hurt from the inside out. So when I was on bail charged with uh, smuggling pot, I used to have to phone this number every night. And if I heard my number, 20293-086, in a recording on that phone call, that meant I had to show up at a place the next day for a piss test. Okay, I'd show up at that place at 5 in the morning and there would be a lineup of 100 people waiting to get their methadone waiting to get their methadone this is a privately owned clinic owned by doctors prescribing methadone at a profit to heroin addicts what exactly is the difference
0: You know, when we're talking about uh, drug addiction and the legalization or decriminalization, part of the motivation for those advocating for that, it's impacted people with mental health issues. And as we know from the data, also exponentially affected people of color and indigenous people in both Canada and the United States. So when we're talking about the war on drugs and trying to move beyond that after, geez, almost 50 years... I think what we're seeing, for example, in Portugal, that's had an example for twenty years where they did decriminalize, right? If they I'm legalized. correct, they legalized it. So that so you would point to to a place like Portugal as an example we should follow
1: uh, they didn't go far enough either. You know, they legalized the possession of it, but not the distribution of it. ok. So I got to break the law to get it. I got to go okay. deal with the criminal to get it. Listen, Stephen. People who want to do these drugs are doing them, my friend. Period. I I get it. I get it. I understand. We force them through the keyhole of a near-death experience to do it. If that worked, we would certainly have seen it by now. That doesn't work. So we don't care about them, you see. We don't really care about them. We wish they would go kill themselves because we don't care about them. Do you understand If we cared about them, we would try something different. But you see, we're not interested in trying anything different. We like to do the same thing, make the same mistakes, and get the same results. Obviously. A trillion plus dollars spent attacking these people. And they're still showing up and doing it. Oh, my goodness me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? What the hell? So
0: (laughs) we want them to kill themselves.
1: We do not want to
0: help them. Well, even worse, I think you know, especially in the last decade, we've seen the violence, like in Mexico, with the drug cartels and the chaos they've created uh, on the population there. So, I think you make a good point, and I, I think you know there's many more voices that are adding theirs to yours in regards to legalization. You know, I lived in Vancouver and I saw the downtown east side. I definitely saw how the the free clinics really tried to turn the May corner, I just but say of course, it's a much bigger. Uh,
1: what you just pointed to is where action actually happens. Where does it happen? On the municipal level. You see, once you get into those buildings that house the government of the entire province or the country, you lose complete relationship to the street. It is only on the municipal level that they have an understanding of what's actually happening on the street. And they're given so little funds to deal with it. None of it filters, or little of it filters down to the municipal level. They're told use property taxes, use the property taxes, the sales tax for your revenue. That's the only place in politics where anything real ever happens, is
0: on the street. And of course, as you know, many municipalities have been starved of funding, right? A lot of the uh, the budgeting has been uh, pushed down to the municipals and, and they're having a hard time with their budgets. But I want to ask you, in Canada we and in uh, many states in the United States now, we've legalized marijuana. And I remember, God, it feels like I lose track with this pandemic, but it's been a few years now. Where there was the doom and gloom from those who saying legalization of marijuana, it's a gateway drug. There's gonna be high school kids. Uh, ruining their brains. It's going to be a free-for-all. Uh, you know, the world's going to end. Uh, well, of course, as we know, hasn't. that hasn't happened. It's been regulated. Hopefully, it's also stopped many people from being arrested and put in jail, as we know from the war on drugs over the last 50 years. It's, again, predominantly targeted people of color, black people, indigenous people. So what did we learn from the legalization of marijuana, Brian, in regards to... Uh, how it's working, and what are the lessons we've learned there that maybe support your position of the legalization of all drugs. I know that you've been involved, you've consulted over the years, which is kind of you know full circle for you. What, what do you think of the tie there from marijuana to other drugs, the legalization, and what we can learn from, from the marijuana legalization?
1: That's a, a lot of a question. Yes. Um, so the marijuana situation we are barely out of reefer madness okay i can go into a liquor store here in santa barbara and pull a bottle of liquor off the wall crack the top on it and hit that thing right then and there <laughs> okay i can do that no problem i want to go in and buy a joint of marijuana in a marijuana shop i got to show them my passport which then they enter in the database on their computer then have you been here before And then I have to go in and show my passport again inside. And I can't touch anything. I can't look at anything personally. I can have someone hold it and show it to me. It is like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? It is unbelievable. It is unbelievable what they've done. So let me just keep going. 69 of the 72 original licenses in Canada lost money last year. Let me tell you how
0: hard it is to lose money selling pot. But I'm not surprised, Brian. I mean, marijuana dispensaries in Toronto, where I live, there's more than Starbucks. There's a coffee shop and then there's a a dispensary and then you walk another block. No wonder they're not making any money. Steve, me and a bunch of crazy guys, 110 of us actually, brought
1: 75 tons of marijuana from a country in the fucking east (laughs) with down rivers manned by military being chased by pirates, and made it over here, and sold that stuff, and made a quarter of a billion dollars. Everybody got paid, everybody got a million bucks, everybody got, I mean, it was incredible, and we did it all in secret, with no cell phones. These guys, with every possible, everything given to them, can't make money, so why did this happen? I'll tell you exactly why. They thought they could do it without the culture. But let me tell you something, the culture is responsible for 80% of the marijuana consumption in the country. They may be 20% of the people, but they smoke all day, every day. Though, If you don't have those people with you, why is the market 65% illegal in Canada? Because you don't have those people with you. I get a text every day on my phone from an illegal operator in Toronto offering me 50 different kinds of pot for half the price that I could get it for, less than half the price at the government-issue shops, and delivered within an hour for free. Because the product they're selling, they've got 50 different strains, you know, Cookies This, OG Kush, all these massively <coughs> excuse me, popular strains were all these big, Legal operators thought it was just growing pot and selling it. Well, they were so wrong, weren't they? However, every craft grower in the country is killing it. A craft grower is a small grower, a little grow operation. They pay attention to
0: what they're growing. They're growing beautiful strains, and they sell it all instantly. I think this might be a good segue. I remember when I first met you, and you're uh, you're very forthcoming. You're 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 someone that that likes to share the stories of your past and and your knowledge and experience for the betterment of others and one of the things that i remember you sharing with me is the mentoring that you were doing with young people in regards to uh the choices and trying to get them to make better choices in their life can you share with us a little bit about kind of that journey
1: you know i when i was in prison uh i got transferred to canada to serve out the balance of my sentence And I became the chairman of the inmate committee in Spring Hill. That was the worst job I ever had, okay? As a matter of fact, it was one of the only jobs I ever had as a job. Um, Paid 50 bucks a month, which was pretty good. But I had to answer to two distinctly opposing forces. You know what I mean? Administration on the one hand. Sure, sure. And uh, inmates on the other. So I got invited one day by my counselor in prison. Everybody is assigned a counselor whether you need it or not. Uh, I got invited by this counselor to go speak at the Rotary Club. He was the head of the Rotary Club. And he asked me, would I come and speak? And so I said, yeah, let's go. I got to tell you a brief little story about going. He picked me up. It was in the evening. And he gave me a $5 bill of cash money. And I went, whoa. He said, well, stop. You can buy yourself a candy bar or whatever you want. Just he and I. He stopped at Shoppers Drug Mart. I'd never been in a Shoppers Drug Mart before because I hadn't been in Canada in many, many years. I go in there with the $5 bill with the intention of getting a couple of candy bars. Five, 10 minutes later, he comes in looking for me, thinking I took off. And I'm standing in an aisle frozen fucking solid. And he said, what's going on? And I said, uh, 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 the colors, I, uh, I just feel like I can't move. And I've never experienced anything like that in my life. But the, the, the colors, I, I come out of a gray few years, yeah? Where everything was gray, green, beige. I walk into Shopper's Drug Mart, and it's like all the colors were screaming. Mm-hmm. And I was paralyzed. I, I, I couldn't believe it. So off we go to the dinner, the Rotary Club dinner. And it was a massive hit. They loved me. And I realized at that moment that I might have something that I could say that may be beneficial. Like, here I am sitting with a bunch of straight-laced guys in the Rotary Club who, you know, would normally probably vote Republican. And when I left that dinner, they appreciated me. So I thought, that's useful. That is useful. So the moment I got out of prison, I started calling schools and saying, hey... I'd like to come and talk to the kids. Well, most of them turned me down. But over time, I got to speak to 50,000, 60,000 kids all over North America. One school in L.A. had 6,000 kids in the room. I mean, it was unbelievable. And so I would talk to the kids, not to tell them what to do, but to tell them what I did and what happened as a result of doing what I did. Amazing. And I would take my kids sometimes to these things with me. And I would point to my beautiful daughter sitting in the front row, just gorgeous. And i say, look at that beautiful girl. Can you believe that's my daughter? And she loves me today. Do you know that I traded half of her early life for time with cocaine? Can you imagine the pain she must have felt? Perhaps you're feeling that pain from your own parents doing that to you right now. I bring my kids to these meetings with me, these speaking engagements with me, because it reminds me of what I did. And I traded a lot of
0: their early lives for cocaine. Just you know, it must be an amazing feeling to be in the room with thousands of young people, and you know you're looking at them—these young faces, the world's their oyster, the future is all theirs. And what do you? What were they saying to you?
1: Oh, gee. After those talks, I get inundated with kids wanting to tell me their story, and it just rips my heart out. You know, when I hear these kids talk about what life is like at home and this, and I, oh, God, I can't hear it. And, you know, I have to call a teacher in. I have to bring somebody to hear this because I can't do anything about it. You see, I'm going. I just come in and going. So I tell the teachers beforehand, too. In every instance, I said, you got to be prepared for some of these kids start telling stories that they would never have told before. Because I stand up in front of these kids and say stuff out loud that they would never say in a million years. And I tell them, listen, how did I get set free? It's by standing up here and telling you this story. Because when I tell it to you, the power of that story has over me is completely evaporated. It no longer has power over me because, you see, it was a secret. I come from a place today where I'm as sick as the secrets that I keep. And if I find myself keeping a secret, I have to find someone to shout it out to so that it doesn't own me. Secrets own me. And when I stand up and tell you my story, the secret has lost all of its energy, has lost all of its power. And you might be blown away thinking, whoa, I could
0: do that too. Thank you, Brian, for that. It's very powerful. It's going to help other people to know that they're not alone, that bad things happen, but you can overcome them. And that's the feeling I have today. So, you know, I can resonate with the story you just shared with us and, and, and thank you for that.
1: Can I say one more thing here?
0: Absolutely.
1: People who are doing drugs, I don't know if I made this clear, but I, I want to make it abundantly clear right now. People who are doing drugs, drugs are not their problem. Drugs are their solution. And so, if we want them to stop doing them, whether we want them to stop doing them for them or for us, we have to find a new solution for them. We can't take their solution from them. You see, your pain is always a price they are willing to pay because they are in their solution. So, we need to find another solution. We need to find a different solution, a solution that is actually the flip side of that coin. How do we flip them to the other side of the coin? And that is by people who have stories standing on the mountaintop and shouting those stories out and saying, I survived,
0: I made it, and so can you. Well said, Brian. Thanks for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a great rating. My book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural take on white advantage and the path to change, launched in Canada and in the United States. So please pick up a copy, Indigo, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our engineer Ian Douglas, producer and sound designer extraordinaire Noah Fouts and executive producers Gerardo Orlando and David Allen Moss. I'm Stephen Dorsey, your host, reminding all of us that we can be better, do better, and if we do that, live better together.